Have you ever tried making something here in America? It's impossible. There's no forms, there's no websites, there's no guidance, there's no manufacturers. Nobody makes anything here. It's ridiculous. So I went to my first Champs trade show February 2016 and I found a company called OTG Glass and I gave them a 6,000 piece order about four months in advance of when I needed it. And this was for April 2016 and I was doing a Flosterdamas collaboration and we were going to Red Rock and they were doing their concert. We were throwing boxes out in the fan. We, we had this whole fucking thing planned, okay? And on day of delivery, we get a call from OTG and they say, hey, yeah, we only have 600 pieces ready to go out of 6,000. And we go, well, what the hell happened with the other 6,000? I used your money to fund other people's orders. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And we are diving literally straight in headfirst to the deep end. I hope you guys are ready to swim because my guest today, oh my God, you guys, he is really fucking smart and really on top of his business. And that business is Hemper.com. You might've heard of them. They are the leading cannabis accessory subscription service. In fact, Brian launched this business in 2015. He was kind of on the money when it came to the subscription service height of things. And not only that, but also navigating the cannabis application. So accessory, ancillary, but still selling cannabis products. So we definitely get into his trials and tribulations of navigating an e-commerce business in this space, but wanted to share a quick fact. Since launch, they have shipped over 1 million boxes. So 1 million subscription boxes of hemper.com, which I thought was just so crazy to think about just the timing of everything. And then as a result of this business's success, and a lot of failures, which Brian candidly gets into in the podcast, which I always appreciate. I know you guys do as well. But because of what he went through building Hemper, he had an opportunity to get into manufacturing. Now they are manufacturing products for their own brand. Pipes, bongs, as well as accessories, pieces to hold your your bud, you know, clips, things like that. So there's a lot of other things that they're manufacturing now, which has led them into manufacturing cones. And Brian has earned the name King of Cones. And that is because him and his company have produced over 85 million pre-rolled cones just in one a month. And that is like only growing and exploding. And so of course, in true to be blunt fashion, we get into it, we get into all of it, understanding, like I shared, his e-commerce journey, navigating entrepreneurship, starting a business, what it's been like manufacturing overseas. We get into also what it's like in some of these markets, which I don't think you guys fully realize how monopolized a product like a cone is actually, but Brian spills the tea and it is so much appreciated. And so 
Heck yeah. Just super excited to have Brian on the podcast. This is a really good episode. So I hope you're taking notes. Don't worry though. If you're not, you can always re-listen to this episode. If you like it though, I encourage you to please hit subscribe on iTunes. Please share it to a friend. Please slide into the DMs and let me know what you think. And that's pretty much all I got. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing Brian. And without further ado, let's get straight to the episode. Please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Brian to the show. So my name is Brian Gerber. Thanks for having me today. I am the I guess, CEO and co-founder of Hemper and Tara Supply. We have a couple of different businesses in the industry. How I got here today, it's been a crazy journey. So about seven years so far. I graduated from George Washington University with a information systems and accounting degree. And I started originally Hemper about a week after I graduated. So May 18th, walked across the stage. June 1st, we were in business. And it originally started as a direct-to-consumer subscription box for discovering, you know, paraphernalia gadgets, basically. And so we started... In 2015, our first month, we had maybe 30 subscribers. It was really me curating this box that I would want to buy. And I think my taste has changed over the years. You know, I was just a recent college grad. And so I was putting, I was curating these boxes to what I would partake in. I think a lot of people are looking for things that make their consumption easier, you know, and there's all these different categories. And so I was like fascinated with like the array of different products that people needed. And so about six months in, we launched this guest curated concept, which was a basically a smoke like Snoop Dogg kind of model. So we would bring in an influencer and then they would pick the items and then we would do like limited edition branded out little like smokers kits every month. And that catapulted the subscription base initially. So we went from like month four, we had like 300 subscribers to about 1500 by month six. And so kind of the snowball effects of the cash flow started pretty quickly on. And so for the first year it was like, okay, what's happening <laughs> to be honest, because the you know digital marketing side is honestly super unique, right there. We can't run ads. We can't by placement and where traditional marketers can. So I was doing the website, doing social media, picking the items in the box, you know, pretty much doing the whole gambit and ended up being a self-taught digital marketer that couldn't run ads. And so as the year kind of went on in 2015, you know, I was like, okay, how do we keep this popular, fresh, exciting? And 2015 was a huge subscription economy year where, you know, Birchbox and Dollar Shave Club, and they were hitting millions of subscribers and raising obscene amounts of money. And so, you know, I was like, okay, like, you know, how high can we scale this? And I kind of went back to, I was doing a lot of research on this at the time. And what I ascertained by a lot of the failed subscription startups was they didn't invest in product development early enough. And if you take the Birchbox example, you know, I guess someone on their team didn't realize you could go to Sephora, Ulta Beauty, Bloomingdale's, Saks, and pretty much buy or CVS and buy everything they were selling, more or less. And so I wanted us to not just be known as like the kind of, oh, you already sent that product, you know, subscription box. I wanted to be the guys inventing new products and releasing that almost on a monthly basis, right? 
And so I started taking apart the industry and there's all these seven figure like niche markets. So there's glassware, right? So bongs, rigs, you know, panpipes, all of that. There's storage, there's cleaning gear, odor eliminating, preparation goods, vaporization, you know, all these different categories. And I was like, okay, let's start one by one attacking each. And so we started with glass because that was kind of the driving value factor in the box. And what we really started was like a, you know, a 10 item box, which was called the Hemper box, basically. At the, it was called the Glass Centrals box at the time. We had a couple different things, but we pivoted since then. And so it was originally 10 products of hot new accessory plus a brand new glass piece. And then we would interchange all these different categories. So one month we'd give you a candle, one month we'd give you an odor limiting spray, one month we'd give you a little storage container, one month a grinder. And we just started curating these boxes once again as if, you know, we were buying it. And so beyond just the influencer, you know, curated boxes, we started segueing actually away from that because people started taking more to the products we were launching and the brand as opposed to the influencer. Right. And we started moving in towards more towards themes. And so, you know, gaming theme, cactus theme, UFO theme, you know, is our most popular one. And we kind of phased out the influencer part on the curation side, just because honestly, I don't know if you've done limited edition, small run stuff. It's super challenging, especially dealing with COVID and all the craziness in the supply chain. So we kind of backtracked on that old model and really started diving into more of that product development. And we really wanted to be known for just releasing functional, useful products that were no brainers once people saw it. And I think that's really what has taken the brand from just a subscription box to really a cannabis lifestyle brand. And so we've amassed, you know, kind of fast forwarding a little bit, we've amassed thousands of subscribers on these monthly packages. We've released over 200 products in the last seven years. We're in thousands of retail stores with these products. We have our own e-commerce channels, obviously, as well. And then about three years after we launched Hemper, we raised seed round of a little over a million bucks. And kind of to date, we've raised about a little over $3 million from VCs. And, you know, with that money, we went cash flow positive and have not raised since. So we stopped at a Series A. And I think that's a big thing in this industry, you know, especially in 2018, where money was just flying everywhere and crazy valuations. And now kind of reality is setting in. And we like to think we've been told we're actually one of the few non-plant touching profitable entities in the entire industry. And now, you know, mid 2018, so we started kind of getting this reputation of being super scrappy and really good at manufacturing. And so we were playing a big labor arbitrage game in India versus everyone kind of supplying from China. And so we doubled down on that and we started supplying a lot of the big packaging companies like Kush bottles, marijuana packaging with paraphernalia products on a wholesale distributor basis. And that kind of segued into our B2B model, which was making stuff for other people, not just our own brands to push out. And midway through 2018, we got this interesting opportunity where we were supplying these packaging companies with class and they had another need, which was pre-rolled cones. And there has been kind of this interesting monopoly. It's a lot smaller than everyone thinks on the pre-rolled cone worlds for basically about the last 20 years. It's been controlled by two people in Indonesia, right? And one of our 
distributors of the glass basically hit us with an opportunity saying, hey, I have millions of dollars outstanding with some of these brands, Raw, Futurola, you know, whoever they could get their hands on. We know you guys are making glass. When India, could you make cones? And so I guess my random roommate at college, RJ, who was also the business partner, one of them, I sent him over to India and we learned the lay of the land. There's a lot of local, more or less, just kind of like sweatshop model people making for the local India market, actually, because Delhi is actually a top 10 cannabis consumption city in the world, which is interesting because it's illegal, but it is. And so we kind of learned the lay of the land, you know, took us about six months, went back for a meeting and basically showed them our samples and walked out with, you know, a half a million dollar purchase order to start our first facility. And so we started our first facility and we didn't really want to be the distributor or sales entity. We really just wanted to be good at making stuff and being a good manufacturing partner to other companies that already had a sales force. And so that was the first iteration of what we thought this would look like. Kind of fast forwarding another six months, taking us to like February of 2019, that distributor was a little overzealous in what they were actually going to be able to sell. And so we actually started going out to the market ourselves after that. And we uh, picked up a ton of the, not just the packaging companies, but the, we deal with a lot of the MSOs. We deal with a lot of the vanity brands in California, you know, the Jeters, Dizzy's of the world. And a lot of these companies were not just looking for someone who could get them cones, but also a cone manufacturer that could also scale with their business, right? You know, the MSO model is pretty new, you know, as we, if we think about this, and a lot of these vanity brands are now scaling to multiple states. And there's really never been a solidified supply chain or partnership in this industry where everyone is growing at the same time, not just the brand is, right? Your manufacturing partner has to be scaling as well. And we were really the only company doing that for pre-roll cone segment. And so we've been able to garner, you know, over 30% of the total cone demand in three years. And at this point, we're now at nine facilities, about 4,000 employees, and we produce about 95 million cones a month for the market. Yes. So it has gotten pretty crazy. And so where did we go from here? I think it's, again, you know, I don't know if the market demand is 200 million or 300 million cones a year or a month, but I can tell you it is insanity, right? Every time we get a forecast from a client, they have to up that forecast. Anytime we get an order in, they're buying double right? Nobody knows, you know, pre-rolls account for about 50% of the total market right now. And it's scaling. And I think as we get a little bit more maturity in this stream, then consolidation happens, we're going to see vape cartridges and pre-roll cones as kind of the leading segments as we more walk towards more of this convenience factor. And at this point, you know, we're dealing with the top 30 brands in the industry. We deal with most of the multi-state operators. And for us as a business strategy, now it's just an input play, right? It's what more can we offer these companies? What more manufacturing lines can we start overseas, right? Is it a Mylar production? Is it, you know, injection molding for dupe tubes? Is it glass jars? You know, so we're moving pretty fast to try to figure out the, the next offering of ours. And so, but right now, pre-roll cones have, are keeping us very busy and trying to make sure as we scale up past this 95 million cone mark, the quality doesn't diminish, the communication doesn't diminish. And, you know, we just hold true to being that solutions partner 
for the industry. And I think that's a big factor of why we've been able to garner so much market share is it's not a one size fits all model, which is what most of the other providers have, right? You go buy raw cones, it's raw cones. You go buy Futurola, it's Futurola cones. We provide different solutions. So we approach it as, do you have automation equipment we need to conform to? What is that machine? Okay, well, we need to create custom tooling for that right? Because more and more automation is coming into the industry, but it's very new still, right? We're now just getting, I see people throwing around the RASS model, which is robots as a service or processing as a service model. And it's so new for our industry, but so needed because there's so many manual things going on in these production facilities that can be easily automated as we scale, you know, as we move through this maturity, I would say. And I think as a lot of the adjacent automation companies start coming into our industry, you know, we're heavily looking at this, you know, cartridge filling is super outdated model. It's super slow. It doesn't make sense. And even on the pre-roll automation side, I mean, most of these MSOs are still using knockboxes to date. And some of them are running a hundred at a time. And you'd be surprised. I walk into some of these facilities and I'm just like, holy moly, it's hundreds of people using knockboxes just over and over again. I'm like, we need to get automation into the you know industry because no one's going to be able to scale or withstand the growth that we're all hoping for, right? And so that's kind of how we got to this point from the seeing it from the direct consumer side, you know, on the brand building. So we have a kind of a unique business because we see it not only on that front, but we also see it on the B2B enterprise level. So we see trends on both sides. And so honestly, you know, it's, it's cones and manufacturing supply agreements that pay the bills and the product development and the subscription box and Hember is all passion. And I think a lot of companies are now looking at this, you know, if you look at like Tilray's business, you know, they just invested and purchased or acquired a couple alcohol companies because as we know, alcohol is a very steady business. And a lot of these larger entities are realizing they cannot just operate off cannabis alone. And so they're now diversifying, which is exactly what we did. And I think that's once again, why we're one of the most profitable entities in the entire industry at this point and continuously scaling, growing over hundred percent year over year for the last seven years. And I think a lot of people are missing the boat on a lot of these, you know, core principles in this new industry where I feel like, you know, we are just playing the chessboard a little bit better. And I like to harp on, you know, some of the marketing stuff, as I know you have a marketing background and scaling Hember has been difficult. I think, you know, not being able to run advertisements, not being able to leverage all the other assets and tools that a traditional brand can use made us think outside the box, right? We, we use super, you know, like guerrilla ground marketing, just like we go into Facebook groups on Facebook and give moderators free packages to do giveaways. These groups have anywhere from 30,000 to millions of people, right? Because I think a lot of people forget, like not everyone's just going around raising their hand saying, you know, I smoke cannabis, right? And finding these consumers is difficult, right? As we can't run advertisements and so we've had to find a lot of different mediums to just get the word out. And it's funny, I, I feel like we've advertised everywhere, but you know, we go to cannabis events in LA and people are walking into our booth and they're like, oh, who are you? This is so cool. And I'm just like amazed every time. I'm like, how do you not know about us? I'm I feel like we're everywhere. It's amazing. And it just shows me how untapped still, even after seven years, we still have so much ground to cover. And which I love because we love doing what we do. And, you know, we recently have started 
coming out with a lot more of these really functional, no-brainer products. I know we sent you a care package and I hope you got to use some of the stuff. And I think that's really where people and consumers are getting smarter and they're identifying the companies that are just trying to take advantage of the situation. And I think why we've serviced millions of customers in the last seven years is because we really truly provide value. We always make it 100% satisfaction guarantee. If something breaks, we replenish it. You know, if something goes wrong, we're always looking to make the customer happy, right? And I think a lot of these newer brands and a lot of these newer companies that come in, you know, whatever they call them, the culture vultures, if you will, they're trying to get that quick dollar. And unfortunately, the cannabis community is like super strong and like they don't allow that for too long and identify it really quickly and are very vocal about it, to be honest. And so I think as we continue to build, you know, our hemper community and giving back and doing all the, for example, like social equity programs and all those nonprofits and just tying everything back to just like everyone and anyone, right? Cannabis doesn't discriminate it. You could be a professional singer, professional skateboarder. You could be a marketer. You could be a Joe Schmo, right? It, we all partake in it for some reason or another. And I think that's what makes cannabis so unique is just that it doesn't discriminate. And, you know, we've been able to tailor you know, not only our products, but our mission, but our marketing and everything towards that ethos. And so that's how we got here today. That was amazing. I mean, I just have to give you some kudos because you're very smart and articulate of obviously what you're doing. And, and it's by no default that your business is as successful as it is. But you touched on so many aspects that I'm like, oh my God, Brian, I got to just like dig in and ask you more about that thing. The one thing that I wanted to kind of reiterate and make a kind of public aha about is the reality of where the market was, let's say with some of these businesses like Raw, for example, a very well-known company, they're in their lane. That's all they do. But the monopoly of that type of product, and when you look at where cannabis was, let's say, 10 years ago, how many people were actually utilizing raw as the base of their product versus the stoners who were looking at, you know, the convenience store or the smoke shop to buy their cones because they're making something at home versus now you have brands who are seeking this as the foundation to put there. And then you're talking about these knockboxes and these big companies still leveraging this kind of piecemeal application to get these products to market is just so wild to consider and kind of acknowledge out loud because I, it really helps frame the infancy of our industry and how all these other businesses are contingent on this supply chain and how the supply chain is really isolated in some capacities. I mean, even just speaking for our business, I own a CBD brand and we do packaging for our products. And so you're looking at like, okay, what are packaging options? And you realize there's maybe realistically four or five out there. And then the next tier of that are just resellers of the same packaging where they put just like a little bit different spin on it. And it's like, wait, there's not more options. And they're all coming from overseas. I know that that's shifted a little bit. You're seeing some manufacturing for at least packaging appear now in the United States, which I think is helping with some of the supply chain issues. But I mean, Kiva was one of those companies that I think what they had that interesting marketing opportunity where their, their packaging was held up at customs and they couldn't get it. And so it was a delayed opportunity that they finally received it. And it's like, we we're going to call this our, you know, stick at the shipping dock package opportunity. And so it's putting these big brands that have a lot of budget and money on the line in compromising positions. And so it's very right for businesses like yourself who 
I mean, I think you would acknowledge if that was presented to you when you first launched, you obviously probably couldn't have fathomed how to go tackle the problem. But because you've had this progression, it just seemed to go kind of hand in hand to kind of deliver you into the opportunity to step into. So I just think it's really cool to hear that story because it's very inspiring, first and foremost. So I want to go back a little bit to more of the hemper side to kind of dissect it a little bit. I think descriptions are still important today. Obviously, you're, you're in business. People are still creating subscription services. But I think when you highlighted the the time period for when which you launched and and I remember, you know, there was the FabFitFun box and, and all yes. these other things. That was a very popular thing to kind of jump on board. And I mean, for the amount of brands that I saw create subscription boxes, there were equally brands that are not here today, right? And so right. looking at subscription... E-commerce is a huge component. I know you're ancillary, so you're not touching the plant, but talk to me about how you approached setting up a subscription service, setting up e-commerce. I mean, 2015 was still a little bit, in my opinion, before the cusp of like, like we have problems doing it today, but it's easier today than it was four years ago. I can't imagine, you know, at that point, what it was like to think, okay, I'm going to go online. I'm going to find a payment merchant. We're going to set all this stuff up. So what was kind of that journey of doing e-commerce and subscription for an ancillary cannabis-related brand? For sure. Great question. Yeah, no. So when I first started, I was super naive. I logged into Shopify, set up a Shopify website, was processing payments through Stripe, which I may have read their non-tobacco terms of service. But to me, I had no idea there was this whole... I want to call it the like payment processing massacre of 2015 to 2018, let's say. And so about six months, once we hit about the $50,000 a month mark, I got an email from Stripe and they said, hi, who are you? I said, hi, I'm Brian. Nice to meet you. That's polite. And they didn't just kick you off. You want to know something funny? I pleaded with them. I said, give me a 30-day window. Wow. Okay. They're humans over there. Yes. And I guess I got the human. And so somehow they gave me 30 days. This was like September, August of 2015. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, we're going to go out of business. Like, this is it, right? I'm like, there's no merchant processors. Nobody's taking us. We have a chargeback ratio that's higher than 1%. We've got subscription, which even more taboo in the processing world. We've got all the no-nos for premium processing. And so it was crazy. We went from Stripe to Cardworks. Cardworks kicked us off because of a hashtag on our social media called Stay High. That was after 30 days. They were holding on to six figures worth of our money for 18 months. I didn't know how we were going to pay for inventory. You know, these are kind of the dark times that I don't necessarily talk about often. But, you know, being an entrepreneur and walking through this path, there's no handbook. We always talk about the office, the shit they don't tell you. Well, you're going to know. You're going to find out quickly, right? And so, you know, it took years for us to find a payment processor that would actually look at us like a legitimate business and not charge us like an illegal cartel. And not only that, but we were so scrutinized on, you know, not just the process side, but the chargeback side, the social media side. I mean, there were words we couldn't use. There were hashtags we couldn't use. And that got us in trouble, you know, more times than I can count. And your social media manager puts a hashtag on that's against their policy and they don't mean to do it. It's just everyone wants to stay high, but the car processing companies don't want to see that, hear that or whatever it is. They want to take on the liability. 
And so, yeah, no, we had, we got kicked off CarWorks, then over went to AVPS. That was like six months, got kicked off that. Finally went over to Evo International Payments, and that was a weird relationship. They were great partners, but then also we kind of had this whole like scare tactic mentality where it's like, guys, your chargeback ratio is above the threshold. We're going to shut you down if you don't figure this out. We're like, well, you know, revenue doubled. Obviously, chargebacks could double, right? We were scaling so fast. It's like, you got to look at all the different parameters, right? But the problem is these risk assessment people are looking at it very binary. And unfortunately, unless you get their ear, have a personal connection, they're going to shut you down time and time again. And you're going to just have to figure it out and pivot and go somewhere else. But yeah, it was insane. For the first three years, it was, you know, are we going to be shut down and not be able to find a replacement? And so that was why years of just like trying to keep chargebacks down, not trying to be that squeaky clean brand, which actually has aided in a lot of success for us, not using cannabis on social media, not using the weed leaf everywhere, not having Rasta colors over everything, not using reefer madness, right? It, it's, we've always said we wanted to be that squeaky clean brand, you know, when Walmart accepts our products, we're right in line. You know, I've been super excited lately because we just hit a huge milestone for the team and we just got accepted into Urban Outfitters as, a, as a vendor which is awesome. I mean, seven years ago, I would think you're joking, you know, pipe dream, right? Yeah. Well, they're coming and... out to be more cannabis friendly too. So it's to your point, you're prime ready, waiting for when these bigger brands are prepared to indulge in exactly. it. You're like, pick me, I'm the brand. Exactly. And oftentimes, even when you're talking to adjacent businesses, like people in the licensing world, oh, you know, honestly, first question they ask you is, do you have any national retailers? When the answer is no, they're like, well, it's probably not time yet, right? And so now this just opens up the door to a ton of different avenues of like, wow, that's awesome. Like maybe there is something we can do. And I mean, I've seen the progression over the last seven years of just like, oh my God, devil's lettuce to, wow, cannabis is awesome. You know? Yeah, the Sigma still and, exists. Absolutely. And yeah, I know I was, it's funny. I was in Missouri in March and I'm like, cannabis is taking me to so many random places. And I'm like seeing the dispensary billboards on the road. And I'm just like, wow, this is crazy. You know, but yeah, no, the payment processing side, that whole navigating that whole world had, was insane. Luckily for the last, I'd say, honestly, not even that recent, maybe the last two years, it's been a little bit less hectic, but finding, I'm sure for you, the CBD processing has been a huge pain in the butt. We yeah. actually got into Square's beta program and we launched a CBD brand that we no longer have. It kind of flared out, but now we just sell third-party brands on Hemper. And, you know, with 40 to 60% profit margins, drop shipping, it's easy peasy, right? We don't need to worry about it. We don't hold inventory. And we've finally found a processing company that is a little bit more experimental, right? They're reaching out to the smaller banks that want to play ball, you know, want to take advantage of this industry, but maybe don't want the liability from the smaller merchants. And I think that's what really happened with the CBD boom was all these snake oil brands yeah, for and, sure. you know, just... Basically, I mean, you know, Ease did it. You know, everyone, there's been all this bank fraud, right? Well, of just the like, brands are just like a flash in the pan versus showing some sort of longevity that at least you can say, look, I've been a merchant. I have some right. good history. You're a legitimate that. business. Yeah. Right. And a lot of people don't think even we're a legitimate business still. I mean, we just signed a new lease back in July of last year, and I had to get so many letters of recommendation from people like because they look at us like you're still a startup and i'm like we've done over a hundred million dollars in seven years is that still a startup 
It's dirty money to them, though. It's they don't. Yeah. Right. And so we're always going to have some type of stigma until deschedulization or whatever this is going to look like, you know, in the next five years or so. But yeah, it's been a huge headache just trying to stay alive on the hemper side, to be honest. Yeah, e-commerce is obviously so empowering. I think COVID reinforced that even more. Obviously, people are wanting to be online. They want products delivered straight to them. But then you do have the nature of our industry and chargebacks. (laughs) I hate it, you know, and then you do, you're getting into these conversations with payment merchants and payment processors and they want to see your chargebacks. And it's the nature of the industry creates some of that fraudulence, but at the same time, there's obviously consumers, your business is growing. And so does that not count for some sort of equity in the transfer of Like you give me this line of, you know, credit or you give me this processing arm, please let me do this. Right. E-commerce is difficult still, but it's better. I come from the WordPress industry. So for me, we chose to do WooCommerce, open source, Shopify is kicking people off. I heard recently. So I'm like, I just don't trust it. But you said Square, we're with Square. We were one of their beta customers too. They will not let us process glass though. I just found a new payment merchant who's going to let me do glass. And then sometimes the payment merchant is like, so for example, subscriptions, we do subscriptions too, just kind of like a flower of the month and things like that. Our current payment merchant does not let me do glass and does not let me do subscriptions. So I can sell you my regular products. And then I had to spin up a separate site to do these things. And I finally found a new merchant processor who's going to let me bring it all back into one. And I'm just like a nightmare trying to go figure out subscriptions. And we had an issue where when we separated it, half of our subscribers their credit cards like got disconnected. And so then they weren't on the subscription. So then you had to go call everybody and be like, hey, do you still want to subscribe? And of course, half of those people are like, no, actually, I don't use this anymore. Right. I, right, Which is right. the beautiful thing I think of subscription. You know, it's reoccurring revenue that a majority of customers probably don't realize they're subscribed to <laughs> until they do a clean out of their, you know, monthly processing and things like that. So it's good and bad, obviously, for the businesses who are trying to navigate through it, but a, a big pain point in trying to scale that. So I know that it's, you know, I think people assume it's glamorous, like, oh, look, your business is so successful. You've hit all these milestones, but you're like, I had to claw and cry. Dark times. And, yeah, like push yes. my way through it. No, for sure. And I think just going back to the point you made about, you know, the embassy that we're still in, you know, a lot of you know, getting back to the cone side, you know, a lot of these companies, like we haven't seen two things happen in our industry. We haven't seen like a Coca-Cola emerge and we have not seen real distribution. It's very true. Right. The industry is very fragmented. You buy cookies in California. It's awesome. You buy cookies in Las Vegas. It's dry and horrible and you never want to buy it again. And real distribution. I mean, if you look at a Coca-Cola, like a Cormark, any of these big national truckering companies, if they launch a product, it's in every single convenience store within 45 days. Do you think our industry will, I mean, because that to me is predicated on interstate commerce. I've heard a couple models, you know, where maybe we won't get interstate commerce for every brand, but there will maybe be certain distributors similar to kind of how alcohol is run. You can't get every brand in every state, but if your distributor carries that brand, then yes, you will start to see Colorado brands pop up in Texas, et cetera. I just think the majority of the industry assumes it's going to be a light switch that gets flipped in the highways are going to be open and you can, you know, traverse your products across state lines. I'm like, I don't think that's really going to happen. So yeah, not, I don't think it's going to happen as quick as you're saying, but 
I think what we can use as a baseline is right now watching how Canada is now exporting finished packaged goods to Europe, to Israel, to Australia, to all these different countries. And so kind of how I see the market going is Canada is going to be cheap, cheap cannabis packaged for super cheap and distributed amongst all these different countries, right? And I think we're going to identify how that looks and those relationships between those different entities and then take that and use it as a framework to see how we could play ball. You know, how does California play ball with Nevada? And is it California growing all of the cannabis that is serviced in all these states, right? And how does that look? Because I think as the consolidation happens, we're going to see more and more brands disappear. I think we're going to see more and more of these MSOs joining forces. And I mean, even that on a small scale, like the integration, I mean, I hear it from my investors who are, you know, part of a lot of the MSOs. It's a nightmare. Just if you look at some of these MSOs, I mean, some of them have hundreds of stores, right? And each store is ordering their own inventory. So they have their own buyers. You need a hundred something buyers. That makes no sense. And a lot of them, if they're buying into like a raw pre-roll or something like that, and they have raw on the filter tip, it's confusing to the customer, right? Is it a raw pre-roll? Is it a Cresco pre-roll? Like, you know, is it a cookies? Who is it? And I think that a lot of companies who are not going after the branding opportunity are going to miss out on a lot of those social proof moments where people are taking Instagram photos of it, videos, they're at parties, you know, just that social sharing aspect. I think a lot of companies are missing that. And so we've really, you know, driven home the custom branded option through Horror Supply, which a lot of companies have had a bad taste because they've waited at, you know, Futurola has six month lead times. We're yeah, I was about to ask weeks. how accessible is this idea of custom because we recently at Restart have invested in custom cones and we were working on like a special blend of like hemp flour that we were going to use specifically in these custom cones to try to kind of introduce, like you're saying, our own branded product, just make it something super special and place the order. And I think they got held up six months plus in production. And then there was some holds up on it being imported into the United States. It obviously had high tariffs taxes on top of it. So it became this clusterfuck of where I'm going to my production team being like, where are the cones? I thought we were going to launch these cones three weeks ago. Now it's turned into, you know, four months later. And until that timeline gets condensed and obviously accessible, both just sourcing it, but also price point wise, it just doesn't seem like it's achievable for brands unless you're, you know, at that vanity level, like you're saying, where you're like this household name in California or something. So it sounds like you've figured out a resolution to it, but how accessible is that to the majority of brands? Like if somebody from the podcast is like, hey, I need 5,000 cones, is that even like, do you have minimums? Like, how do you work through some of those challenges? Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. 
for sure. So obviously, if we have scaled from one cone to 95 million cones in a month, we've seen different things happen. So on a lead time basis, we are the shortest lead time in the industry. We're right now about four to six weeks for production. Okay. And the our competitors out there are pushing six months or four to six months. And I think one thing to differentiate is if you buy from a direct manufacturer like us, we're able to do different things. We can reprioritize, we can deprioritize, we can move things around. When you're dealing with like a Futurola or a Custom Cones USA or someone who just buys capacity, they don't have those capabilities. And I think that's really important for a large brand or a bigger MSO or in even a smaller brand that is just looking to test stuff right in market because nobody knows what really is going to work right now. We're all experimenting, right? And so for minimums, you know, we like to keep it between 30,000 and 100,000, but we've been flexible. And I use the word flexible because we've had to be flexible as the solutions partner approach to gain so much market share so quickly. And again, once you're looking at the other landscape, like who wants to work with a middleman anymore? Nobody. You have no visibility into supply chain. You have no visibility into the shipping. You have no visibility into anything. And that's frightening as a brand owner and as a someone in charge of the production line. And so having that confidence that you're not only buying into quality, but the price almost doesn't even matter that much when you think about it, right? It's still less than 1% of the finished good cost on the cone side. And I think it's really about, you know, we went at it a different approach. So we have, we're actually the most certified factory in the world. We have GMP, we have three different ISO certifications. We're HACCP certified, we FFC certifications. We have halal, gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, and like five other things. And so I think that has been a huge proponent in we're making quality and we're doing it fast. Well, how does that impact the quality of the cone, for example, the way it burns? I know there's a lot of snobs out there who are very particular about the brand. Even when it is branded, they want to know even just a hemp cone, unbleached paper. I mean, these are questions we get all the time when we change our base product inevitably you get a customer come back. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we were even getting, you know, oh, these cones are canoeing now. And is it like, okay, is it the cone? Is it how we're packing it? Like trying to get to the bottom of it. But you do have consumers out there who are looking for quality. And I think when you look to brands like Futurola or Raw, they have established at least some sort of quality assurance with that. And so one, as the manufacturer to a brand who's branding custom those cones, what are the quality assurances of, I guess, that compared to a brand like Raw versus also then your manufacturing versus a brand like Raw or something where, I mean, people are asking for those things. I'm sure you can produce it, but that is kind of, you know, the fundamental question. I think people want these pure quality products. Yes. So let me break this myth. Yes. (laughs) All the paper is the same. The paper is coming from the same manufacturers. It is all placebo. So kind of same with vape carts too then. Exactly. And, you know, we get it oftentimes, you know, oh, I need natural brown. I want it close to raw. Okay. Well, if it comes from the same manufacturer, is that close enough? Right. It's the same tensile strength, the same wood pulp. It's the same raw material. It's the same everything. And so we produce for a lot of those companies that you're naming. And that's the reason why you see them on the shelf right now. Otherwise, there'd be a massive shortage. And obviously, my 95 million is not just for cannabis people. We do a lot of the retail cones that you see at smoke shops and convenience stores for a lot of those big vanity brands that you speak of. And so we see it from both sides. We see it from the 
big tobacco guys, the Raws, the OCBs of the world, and we see it on the MSO and big brand side, right? And both sides have different needs. And so oftentimes when, you know, we have clients that are like, oh, we only use raw, they have the best paper in the world. And I say, well, we get the paper from the same manufacturer. Oh, really? And they try to find ways to discount it or discredit it. Yeah, for sure. I bet. Once you debunk this myth, you're like, oh my goodness. So I've been spinning my wheels for no reason. It shows how small the world really is in some capacities and also how effective branding really can be for a brand. Yes, exactly. And I think that us coming to the industry, you know, three years ago, not many people knew about how similar the paper is or how there really is only us and two other manufacturers in the world that even control the production. You know, if you're going through a Custom Cones USA, they're using all the little sweatshop guys in India. And the biggest difference between working with us is that we stand by our quality and you're not going to run into a contamination issue. You're not going to run into a pesticide or heavy metal problem. And God forbid you run into a recall situation, right? And I think that is the biggest thing that we try to harp on with a lot of these big cannabis companies that are trying to save that half a penny by going with the smaller guy. You're going to be spending dollars remitting all of that product. So that is a major thing that you know I want the listeners to take away is that it's not worth cutting the corner for a half a cent. Well, like you said, it's information that is just not discussed at frequency. And I saw it a lot happen. And maybe I'm one of the more aware people just by nature of the conversations I get to have because of this podcast. But that conversation equally, like I mentioned, with vape carts, this perception of, oh, everybody's producing vape carts. It's like, no, realistically, there's a handful of people. And there's probably five people manufacturing cartridges and 30 people assembling them. Yep. Right. And that reality people don't talk about or acknowledge. And then they ask the questions, oh, I need to make sure it's this card. It's like, okay, well, they're all the same. Like you're saying, it's all coming from the same place. Exactly. So funny story. I'm talking to a potential client and it's a celebrity and they only smoke raw papers. Okay. And one of their friends in the industry who is also owns a major cannabis company launched a recent paper brand and gave them samples to try. And so I'm on this conference call and I'm like, oh, what did they think about so-and-so's paper? Oh no, they like raw so much better than the other brands. There's just something wrong with the other brand. And I'm on this call and I go, guys, the paper is literally coming from the same exact manufacturer, not even just two different French companies. I'm talking literally the same company. And they're sitting there like, are you serious? Like, really? Like, that can't be. I'm like, "It, it, it is. Like, I can... Do a deeper dive and give you import records if I really need to. But like I can literally trace this for you if you need. Yeah. Yeah. And so we spent so much time just debunking this whole myth of that raw has the best paper, Futural has the best paper, or OCP has the best paper. It is so similar to this point. And the canoeing and running usually has to do with the packing and grind consistency and not necessarily the paper. And, you know, I think a lot of companies will come back to us and say, oh, our cones are running or actually I really haven't heard that at all, but let's just say it happens. You know, it's like there's so many other parameters that go into it that I can't control just selling you a tower box of codes, right? You've got the grind consistency, you've got the 18-year-old on the line who's filling these things. Is it a knockbox? Is it automation? Is it the machine? What is it? And I think it's funny as we walk down this whole path of, you know, this consolidation and all the automation that's coming into the industry, it's 
you know, like when people say like, oh, I just took a call with this machine company. What do you think? And I go, in my head, I want to say no, no, but they're already almost down the path. And I'm like, do I change their whole direction? Do I be that guy? Do I be that partner? Or do I just kind of swallow it and let them do what they think is best? And, you know, we walk into a lot of procurement officers that think they know the world. And I say, just because you were sourcing Gatorade bottles does not mean you know this industry. That is the hardest reality about just the makeup of who the entrepreneurs are in our industry. It's, oh, I did this here. I can do it here. Not realizing how, again, infant our industry is and the resources that they need to execute it at scale are just simply not put in place. Exactly. I have a couple more questions. You've been super informative. I'm literally like, how do I just keep talking to you and picking your brain, (laughs) which is, again, the beautiful opportunity I get as the podcast host. I'm like, I love these conversations are super, super enlightening. We're talking about manufacturing. I want to shift to a little bit of the glass production, because that to me is something that visually from a social media perspective, from an influencer perspective is very appealing. I think when you are trying to you know, get your products to be on social media without you having to necessarily drive that awareness. And you're talking about these different themes. I find it so fascinating. So there's a couple questions in there. I'm sure you're going to answer them and then some, but the meat of it is how do you keep up with the themes? Do you work on it? I know it's not month to month, surely, but the turnaround time between, okay, I've got an idea. You mentioned like the UFO theme. I'm sure you've repeated themes. So it's not, you know, there's not infinite amounts of ideas out there. But when you started Hemper, you weren't manufacturing these, let's call them bongs, pipes, pieces like that. How were you sourcing that and then transitioning into now manufacturing your own products? Like that to me seems like a whole just like channel of how did you do it? Like, how did you navigate it? Because it's so smart when I look at your social media page, they're beautiful quality pieces. And then I think another sub part of that conversation, right? Because I've talked to a couple of other glass companies. I'm in Austin. Grav is headquartered here. Not that they're necessarily manufacturing here either, right? But there's a lot of sentiment of what's the quality of glass? Are they putting paint on it? Is the paint actually healthy? Like all these different tiers, same thing that, you know, you talk about cards, you talk about cones and things like that. So the glass industry is equally plagued with, I think, a lot of concern. And and rightfully so. I always love to, you know, like exclamation point, these are smokable products. People are like, is this healthy? I'm like, well, at the end of the day, you're still inhaling something. So Safety, yes, you want to make sure it doesn't have lead or pesticides, et cetera. But approaching sourcing the creativity of your pieces and your boxes to then manufacturing, making sure that those are interesting quality. How do you keep the engine going? Like that to me is just so fascinating. And I would just love to hear your take on that. Yes. So this is a funny story as well. So, okay. We were sourcing from originally for the first six months, actually for the first year, we were sourcing from just a regular wholesaler down on Third Street in California. And I had this, I guess, call it a pipe dream, no pun intended, that I wanted to be the only subscription box that had American made glass. Have you ever tried making something here in America? It's impossible. There's no forms, there's no websites, there's no guidance, there's no manufacturers. Nobody makes anything here. It's ridiculous. So I went to my first Champs trade show, February 2016, and I found a company called OTG Glass. And I gave them a 6,000 piece order about four months in advance of when I needed it. And this was for April 28th. 
16 and I was doing a Foster Damas collaboration. And we were going to Red Rock and they were doing their concert. We were throwing boxes out in the thing. We, we had this whole fucking thing planned, okay? And on day of delivery, we get a call from OTG and they say, hey, yeah, we only have 600 pieces ready to go out of 6,000. And we go, well, what the hell happened with the other, you know, 6,000? I used your money to fund other people's orders. Oh, awesome. Thank you for letting us know. Okay, so this was pretty much our bank account was depleted because that was all the money we had for the inventory. And I get a call from RJ, one of the business partners, and he says, he's like, dude, we don't have money for replacements. I think we're done, like literally done. And I was like, RJ, like, come on, like, what? let's let's pull our personal bank account. Let's, let's figure this out. He's like, dude, I, I'm done. I, I don't have any more money. The company has no more money. We're screwed right now. And I sat there for the whole day and I'm thinking, holy shit, this, there's no way. I just put a year and a half into this. We had the largest collaboration of our life coming up. We're going to Red Rock, this whole thing. There's no way I can let this fail. So on a whim, I go on AmericanExpress.com and I somehow get approved for the Amex Plum card, which had a net 60 payment for merchants. So I got the card and somehow they allowed me to charge $45,000 in one day. And we went down to Third Street and we got replacements and we were able to continue going on. And I get a call immediately after I make that charge on Amex and they say, hi, is this Mr. Kerber? Is this BRH International? I go, yes, it is. Oh, well, sir, you know, thank you so much for being an Amex member. But we see that you put $50,000 in one day and normally we don't allow that. And I said, well, you know, I figured because it had a net 60, you know, we were, I just charged what we needed to charge and I guess we'll figure it out in 60 days. Right. And they said, yeah, I guess so. And so, yeah, it was a scary time for sure. And we got super lucky there. And so finally, after about nine months, we were able to get our money back from OTG through Chase. They reversed the transactions because it was a merchant vendor or a vendor customer agreement that they have, where if you don't get the goods and you can prove it, we got so lucky they reversed wow. all $40,000. Yes. What a blessing. That's yeah, crazy. It, was there any? I, no, there wasn't. But I would think Chase would be like, oh, this is glass, paraphernalia, any stipulations against tobacco related product. We, I guess we stayed vague and they did not shut us off. And RJ likes to say divine intervention. It's like the universe will not let us fail. Yeah. And, you know, he's Indian, so he's very karma and spiritual <laughs> and keeps I'm the Jewish, positivity so. flowing. Yeah. Yeah. So the plum card saved us. So I got to thank Amex for keeping my business alive. Right. And finally got the money back. And so then I said, you know what? The hell with American made. It's not possible. We tried. I forced it on us. And look what happened. We got screwed. And so after that, I sent RJ and Henry over to India and I said, we need to figure it out over there. And so a couple months later, I think it was summertime, you know, July, August, September, we came out with our first piece, which was for our Cypress Hill collaboration. And we did this whole party in LA with the group's members, you know, Be Real and Send Dog. And uh, we like cooked out and did this whole awesome collaboration thing. And that was our first imported piece by ourselves. And even getting, so not just, so finding manufacturers. So RJ and Henry went over there. We figured out the labor arbitrage and we found some local guys who would 
ended up partnering with us and running our facility, basically, but us funding the whole thing. And now getting glass to the U.S. is also a big problem. Right. Well, really quick, did you supply them designs? I mean, I don't look, is this yeah, India so, create a lot of, yeah, I, you so, say they're a top consumption, but I don't yeah. think like, oh, India is like where you're no, designing no, no, glass. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah, like, here's yeah, a really yeah. cool so, piece you should buy and sell. Yeah. So basically how that all happened was I knew I wanted to bring everything in house as much as possible. So it was midway through 2018 and I was, sorry, not midway through 2018, midway through 2016. And I was in a two-person office in a WeWork in Washington, DC. And I had just let go one of my designers and I was looking for a new product developer, I guess. And I'm like, okay, where am I going to find a product developer who smokes weed or likes weed and can design this stuff and or can take, because I always do what I wanted, take what's in here and put it on paper, right? I never wanted to master Photoshop. I never wanted to master programming. I never wanted to master that. I'm more of the jack of all trades. I'm the sales guy. I'm the driving force. I'm the connector, all of that stuff, right? And so funny enough, I'm walking through the WeWork and one of the WeWork members comes up to me and they go, hey, Brian, how's it going? I'm like, oh man, I'm super stressed out. I need to find a product developer, like this and that. And they go, oh, really? Well, I actually just had a friend move back to Virginia who worked on like a smoking accessories company in New York or something like that. And I was like, dude, stop fucking around. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you have a friend that just moved back to Virginia. I'm in DC who just worked at a smoking accessories company. You got to have them contact me immediately. So I'm sitting there holding my thumbs. Two days go by. I'm like, John, did you did you let your buddy know? Like, what's going on? And he's like, yeah, man, I let him know. I let him know. Finally, later that afternoon, I got a text from someone named Gabe Grant. And Gabe Grant had... Grew up in the Virginia area, you know, so we were both local, Maryland, Virginia, and had just moved back from Brooklyn. And he just got let go from Private Tier after developing the Marley Natural Accessories line. And I said, holy shit, divine intervention. Okay, let's keep going. He comes in for an interview and I told him my grand vision of what we want to do here, what I want to do here. And he first started freelancing a little bit. And then finally, after a couple months, came on full time. And Gabe is now our director of product development. He's moved three different states for us. And he's been with us for over five years. And yeah, that is how I got into product development. And so now we have a team of three people on the product development side. And I do a lot of product development and so does our creative director as well. You know, we have a lot of ideas. And so everything is in-house from the glass designs to the accessory designs to, you know, everything. So we don't outsource marketing. We don't outsource creative design. We don't outsource product development. We don't outsource really anything anymore. We brought it all in-house and have along the journey really found these ride or die people that have just bought into the vision and really saw the opportunity and the potential. And so now kind of fast forwarding, it's, you know, all of the glass where you see, we do everything in house. We design it from, and we have 3D printers here in Vegas. We rapid prototype as much as we possibly can. Uh, we've got print, yeah, we have printers, we have laser cutters, we've got all different types of stuff. And it's funny you mentioned Grab in Austin. I just spoke with Dave Daly a couple of days ago. Great guy. And, you know, sharing our stories, you know, him starting in 2004 to me starting in 2015, right? And it's so interesting to hear everybody's perspective. But yeah, no, so we started developing all these products and, you know, the designs have gotten more intricate, obviously, as we've gotten better and our capabilities have gotten 
larger. And so, yeah, it's been interesting just playing the India, China, Vietnam arbitrage of where these things are going to get made. And throughout COVID was honestly a shit show just figuring out where we're going to put this stuff because, you know, at one point China was shut down and at one point India was shut down. And so we were constantly arbitraging like, okay, this guy's going to make this, that guy's going to make this, we're going to make this. We're designing everything in house, but it's not easy when you don't control every single aspect. So that is why over the last three years, I'd say we've tried bringing everything in house and stopped relying on other people. And honestly, from the PTSD moment from the OTG, right? It's just why put ourselves in that position if we don't have to? And I know a lot of companies in this industry, you know, maybe yourself included, trying to come out glassware and just finding solid manufacturing partners. It's so fragmented. And so that's why we've taken so much control over, right? And yeah, that is how we do things now. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.